Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and I'm beside myself today. I'm really excited. What I get to serve up in today's episode is, for me, sort of the dessert in the main course of what we usually cover on this show, current affairs, news, politics, of course, and thought about culture. We feature writers, we feature elected officials. But today I get to return to a topic that is very close to my heart that I find super exciting and definitely qualifies as going way, way beyond politics. I am thrilled to welcome back to the show, the sky guy, John Gianforti, who is an astronomer, the director of the University of New Hampshire Observatory and astronomy instructor at UNH. He's a science writer. He's an adjunct faculty member at Granite State College. He teaches modern astronomy and experimental physics courses at the University of New Hampshire. And he has been featured on our show before talking about what's new in astronomy, space, physics, I just really enjoyed these episodes. And John, I'm delighted to have you back. Well, it's my pleasure to be back with you, Matt. I look, was looking forward to this. I, I am too. This is, uh, these, are, these are just absolutely fascinating conversations. Obviously, you've been featured a lot on New Hampshire Public Radio, and we're sort of delighted to poach you over to WKXL. So where should we start? I, I think the, the, the top of the agenda probably has to be the James Webb space telescope. Nerds like me are sort of all a quiver with excitement about, well, as we record this, it's the upcoming launch, the anticipated launch of this giant new space telescope. By the time our listeners hear this, maybe it will already be launched. So John, just maybe you could tell our listeners, why are people so darn excited about this? Well, it's been in the news a lot, and we're excited because of the capabilities that the new telescope brings to astronomy, astrophysics. Um, it, there's a lot of talk about it because it's like seven years late, because it's a very, very complicated instrument. It's the most complicated space telescope ever launched, and there have been many besides the Hubble Space Telescope, but it's this telescope is much larger. It has a a, a tall order in front of it that it has to accomplish. And quite frankly, it's, a, it's a, a very complicated design in order to do, to achieve the science goals that uh, the scientists and engineers have set for this instrument. And it, it's, uh, it's, it's a much more capable instrument than Hubble. You know, Hubble is more than 30 years old. Um, so the technology has advanced, and the James Webb Space Telescope takes advantage of some of those improvements, advancements in technology, and you know we and we're so excited about it because what the telescope has the potential to bring us is information on a wide variety, a wide variety of different areas of astronomy, um, and you know it, it's it's. A classic example of bigger is better. The larger your telescope is, the more light it can collect. If you think of a, a rain bucket, right? People, a lot of people in New England, they they uh, they put these rain barrels out in their garden to collect water. And the bigger the barrel is, the more water droplets fall in, and the more water you collect, which is great for watering your flowers and vegetables. 
Light is similar to that. You can think of um, raindrops as photons, little particles of light that your telescope or your eye collect. And the bigger the collector you have, the more of these photons you collect. And the more photons you collect, the more information you collect about whatever it is you're looking at. And the brighter the images are. And with astronomy targets, whether it's a, an asteroid, a planet, a star, a galaxy, a star cluster, they're faint, they're dim. So the more photons you collect, the brighter your images. And the brighter the images, the higher the quality of information you can extract from the light from that object. So being having a, a 6.5 meter in diameter, effective diameter for this mirror, compared to Hubble's 2.4, gives it a lot more um, surface area, which means it can collect a lot more photons, a lot more light, and, and peer deeper into the universe and uncover dimmer things that the Hubble would have taken a, a very, very long exposure to, uh, to see. Uh, the James Webb Telescope can do it in a, a fraction of the time that the Hubble Space Telescope uh, could do. Well, I want to say that I am a big advocate of doing science for its own sake. As we talk to each other here today over Zoom, you actually have an image of the moon behind you, which I think is very apt because we've covered on this show and on the Great Idea Show before the fact that the moonshot program is what is responsible essentially for the modern world we live in. And you were just alluding to the fact that the cameras on the James Webb telescope are going to be orders of magnitude more sophisticated than the cameras that were on Hubble. All of that kind of technology, the fact that we have those kinds of super sophisticated cameras in our phones, these little computers that we carry around in our pockets with us all the time, all of that technology is the descendant of the science that we did in the moon program and everything leading up to the moon program. So that's all a huge caveat. I'm saying that up front because the value of doing this kind of work on telescopes like the James Webb telescope is incalculable. It's, it's valuable to all of us. But in a narrower sense, there are some deep scientific questions that astronomers are hoping to be able to get answers to by having the James Webb capabilities over and above the other telescopes, including Hubble that we have. What kinds of questions are scientists hoping to be able to answer or at least start to answer in the next few years once the James Webb's te telescope's capabilities come online? Well, I, I love the way you opened that. It, it's in, so we'll, we'll talk narrowly about the science missions, which are hardly narrow, but um, I understand exactly what you're referring to. Like, I, I, I love addressing with people when they come and visit at the observatory or when I go and give a talk somewhere. So what? what? So what if there's life on another planet? So what if there's microbial life on, living in the dirt or under the dirt on Mars? So what's the big deal about that? Why should we be spending $10 billion on a telescope? How does that affect my quality of life? And you, you kind of hit it on the head lightly. So let's talk about the science mission first because that's what we're gonna focus on. So one of the things that's different about James Webb is that the kind of light that it is sensitive to. You know, there's lots of different kinds of light. You, many people don't know that there's X-ray light, 
everybody's familiar with an x-ray when you go to the dentist or you go to the hospital because you might have a broken arm. X-rays are one form of light. Ultraviolet rays are another form of light. Visible light rays that our eyes are sensitive to, that lets us see the universe. That's another kind of light. But there's another kind of light called infrared light. It's, uh, we know it and identify it as heat. But the James Webb telescope has instruments, four cameras actually, that are more sensitive to infrared radiation or light than the other forms of light. Hubble focused on visible light and ultraviolet and maybe did a little bit with infrared. But the James Webb telescope will focus more of its observing time and uh, data collection on infrared. Why do we do that? Well, infrared radiation, infrared light has some unique properties. Um, the universe, the galaxy, is full of dust and gas. It's not just stars, but most of the universe is pretty empty. It's pretty rarefied, right? The vacuum of space, you've heard that expression. Well, the areas of our galaxy, that there are areas of our galaxy that, ha that are pretty dense. There are areas of high density of dust and gas, at least compared to the vacuum of space. And infrared radiation can pass through this dust and gas. For example, if we wanted to look at the massive black hole that is at the center of the Milky Way galaxy, we were chatting about that a little while ago, and there's been a few stories about that in the news recently. We couldn't actually do that with the kind of light that our eyes can see. Visible light cannot penetrate the light years of dust and gas that lie between where the sun is in the galaxy and the center. And that's about 27,500 light years. But with using other wavelengths, other types of light, like infrared, for example, infrared can pass through that dust and gas and give us a look at what's going on at the center of the galaxy. It can also look through these nebulae, these clouds of dust and gas in the universe where stars are forming. The dust and gas themselves blocks the visible light from our view, but it doesn't block the infrared. So if you took a picture of one of these star forming regions with a, a digital camera, you would see a beautiful cloud of red hydrogen gas, but you wouldn't see the actual stars forming in the process of forming along with a solar system that might be forming around that star. But with infrared, you cut through that dust and gas in the periphery and go right into where the star is actually forming and even see these circumstellar disks that, that will later become planets orbiting these newborn stars. So infrared light gives us information that we can't get with other kinds of light. And one of those things is studying planets, uh, the, the actual uh, birth of stars and planets as it happens in real time in, in different locations in, in, in the galaxy. Um, so that's just one area. Uh, another really important area is um, back in 1992, uh, the first planets orbiting a star outside of our solar system were discovered. 
1995, the first planet was found orbiting a star similar to the sun. Um, and, and since then, uh, more than 4,600 exoplanets have been not just detected, but confirmed in more than 3,500 other solar systems. And many of these stars have multiple planets orbiting them, up, up to seven, six or seven planets orbiting in the same system. So one of the problems using visible light to detect these and see these planets is that the star far that has a planet orbiting it far outshines the brightness of the planet in visible light like a billion times outshines the planet. So it's like trying to read the wattage of a bulb from the floor with the light on. You know, the light of the bulb, just, over, just you just can't read the writing on the bottom of the bulb, right? But if you use infrared light, infrared radiation, the planet is about a thousand times brighter than it was in visible light and gives you um, a fighting chance to image directly, see the dot that is the planet. And that is what we really wanna do because if we can do that, we can actually detect if that planet has an atmosphere and if it does have an atmosphere, what kind of gases make up that planet's atmosphere? And why is that interesting? Why would that you know, make the stock market go up and down? Well, because using our ability to determine what gases make up a planet's atmosphere gives us a chance to detect, to see if there are what we call biosignatures, things like methane, carbon monoxide, oxygen. If there are gases, several gases that um, would be indicators of some kind of process that would take that planet's atmosphere out of equilibrium, that might mean, wow, that's a potentially habitable planet. And that is a question that drives much of science today. Are we alone in the universe? How do we figure that out if we are? And this is one way that we can begin to try to answer that question. What I love about the way you laid that out is that it really does portray scientists in the enterprise of what they do, which is, they're, they're cosmic detectives and they build layer upon layer. We were talking about this a few minutes ago of evidence, one upon another, little tiny pieces of evidence, and they confirm them and they find other pieces of evidence that fit together. And they are able to build up so that these little teeny tiny pieces of information, is there methane in the atmosphere of a planet that we only detected because we used all kinds of other pieces of detection and evidence, that little piece of information builds us toward a hypothesis of maybe this is a planet that can harbor life. And then we continue the detective process until eventually someday we are able to determine, wow, there is life somewhere else on another planet. It's, it's just incredible. And we're kind of midway through that story with the James Webb telescope. I, one more point on, on the telescope and I, we can move on to another topic, but what really astonishes me, and I think one of the reasons that nerds are a quiver all over the world right now, is that NASA is really living up to the you gotta risk it for the biscuit type mentality of 
of science. This is a $10 billion telescope that NASA has spent 25 years building. A few weeks ago, a clamp that was holding up a critical piece, unclamped, fell down, and everyone in the room, I think, had a hissy fit. And on top of all of that, in addition to the perils of any space launch, NASA has decided to send the James Webb Telescope a million miles away, unlike Hubble, which is a few hundred miles away and where famously we can do maintenance, it is going far, far away. So this is this is a big deal. They are really, really going for it and they are they are flying without a net. Do you do you feel good? <laughs> I love do you feel that. good about this approach? Is it is it worth it? Is it worth all of this risk? Well, I I, <laughs> I love the way you're flying without a net. That's great. That's great. And that's that's a great analogy. It it, it it's risky. It, it's risky. There, there's two things that that we're concerned about, right? I mean, you know, we don't have the space shuttle anymore, so we can't service the Hubble anymore. It was serviced five times with visits from astronauts riding in the space shuttle, and the Hubble was designed to be serviced by the shuttle, right? But the but there's no more, you know, that was, the shuttle was retired in 2011, so we, we can't make any more repair trips, even if we wanted to. Um, so putting the James Webb where it is, a million miles away from Earth, was done for a couple of reasons, but it, it does make it unserviceable. So it's got to work coming out of the box. So part of that 25 years of design, debating, and, and assembling is trying to design redundant systems so that if one nut, bolt, screw, washer system fails, you have backup. Now, you can't do that for every single system, but where it could be done, it was, and that's why it's as complicated and, unfortunately, as expensive as it is. Well. As we record this, like I said, we may release this podcast and go to air on WKXL with this, and it may have already happened. It's currently slated to happen. It could be Christmas Eve. So look, people out there, if you're if you're sitting there, if you if you've got your NORAD Santa Tracker app open, <laughs> and you're keeping you're keeping progress on what Saint Nick is up to, and you're saying a little Christmas Eve cross your fingers, maybe even a little prayer if, if, if that's <laughs> your persuasion. Just keep in mind the enterprise of the James Webb Space Telescope. It is, as our president would say, a BFD. It really matters. I think all the science that's gone into it is going to pay off in ways we can't even imagine in the years to come. Seriously, the world around us is going to benefit because of all this incredible science. If you don't believe me, look it up or listen to the Great Ideas episode about how the modern world we live in, computers, the internet, the fact that I'm talking to John over Zoom right now is because we do the space program. So with that thought, we commend the James Webb Space Telescope to the heavens, and I hope that all goes well. I want to start to turn to some other topics that have been front of mind and in the news recently. And the first one is, this really is the plot of movies. Some of them are kind of cheesy movies, but we're all afraid that at some point, an asteroid is going to come along or a comet and destroy life on Earth. This actually happened 66 million years ago. If you don't believe me, take a look at the Chicxulub crater, which is the after signature of a giant impact that destroyed the dinosaurs. There's a reason that we are not all lizards today. Scientists who have looked at this 
say that it is 100% certain that we'll be hit by a devastating asteroid. We're just not 100% certain when. And that's why NASA undertook a mission recently to see if, look, if we could spot one of these near-Earth asteroids or a comet that was coming our way, could we do anything about it? It was called the DART mission. John, what was up with this mission and how did it go? Well, it's it's going okay. It launched in September. It's called DART, Double Asteroid Redirect Test. That's the name of the mission. And you know, you you brought up a cup, couple of, of good points as you always do, Matt, um, to introduce this this topic. Um, here here's why this is important. An, another science mission that has practical implications, practical aspects to it. So you could be listening to you know, this program saying, yeah, that doesn't happen very often. What are the chances of that happening? Come on, that's, that's, that's not gonna happen in my lifetime and it'll probably never happen again. But here's the thing, our planet has been orbiting the sun for about four and a half billion years. That's four and a half thousand million years. That's a long time. Now, over the course of the human lifetime of maybe 100 years, if we're lucky, that's a very small percentage of the time that the Earth has been around and the rest of the planets and the sun as well. But in that time, the Earth has been pummeled by impacts. Um, about uh, there, there are hundreds of tons of material that enter Earth's atmosphere every day. You don't see it because it's small micrometeorites that eventually settle to the ground and they don't leave a crater, they don't ruin anybody's house, they don't cause any damage. But we live in a dusty solar system. There's lots of dust in space, but there's also some big pieces. Luckily, the big pieces are fewer and farther between than the little pieces, which is good. There are far more small impacts than there are large ones. Again, a good thing. But if you look at the moon with the naked eye, with binoculars or a small telescope, you'll see that the moon surface is literally shoulder to shoulder covered with impact scars that we call craters. And the moon is pretty close to the earth only a quarter of a million miles away. Plus, and the existence of the moon most likely owes to a giant impact early in Earth's history, right? Like that's the reason we have a moon. To which, which, which is a whole nother program. Right? Well, that's a whole other discussion, right? I'm, I'm taking us off track, but that's, that's a fascinating story in itself. Please go on. But the moon has all these scars on it that give our, leave a record of the impact history of that astronomical body. Well, think about this. The Earth is about four times bigger than the moon, so it's a bigger target. It's 81 times more massive, so its gravity is, is much stronger than the moon's. The Earth has been hit more times than the moon has. And you say, well, I don't see any craters around here. Well, that's because the Earth erases craters whether it's erosion, it's weather, it's wind, it's rain, it's snow, and plate tectonics, it resurfaces itself in only a few hundred million years. Whereas the moon is not 
a real geologically, a really geologically active body. There aren't strong earthquakes or volcanoes on the moon that change its surface. So when something happens like an impact or an astronaut's foot in the dust of the moon, it's gonna be there for millions, if not billions of years. So the impact history in this part of the neighborhood where the earth orbits the sun shows that it's a really busy area. So to think ahead of us finding an, an asteroid that has our name on it is really smart and practical and, and pretty inexpensive. So what NASA is trying to do with the DART mission is there's a small double asteroid, two asteroids, one is about maybe 500 uh, feet in, in diameter, one's about 2,500 feet in diameter, and the small one orbits the larger one at about a half a mile away. So it's like these two things going orbiting each other as they, as a pair, orbit the sun. Now, these objects um, can come within about four to four and a half million miles away from the Earth, which places them just inside a group of objects that, that NASA calls potentially hazardous asteroids. A potentially hazardous asteroid is defined is if the object can come within about 5 million miles of the Earth and is larger than about um, 300 feet across. They use that kind of a approximate boundary for distance and size um, just to separate the smaller bodies that wouldn't damage the Earth much from the larger ones that would, right? Because there's a lot of potentially hazardous asteroids out there, but they don't come very close to Earth. And we watch for this, right? And it's pretty inexpensive to do that. But what, let's say next month, um, an amateur astronomer discovers an asteroid, and when we do the calculations, it's going to impact the Earth in five years. We can do that, right? We can, we can make those kinds of observations and calculations. What are we going to do about it? Well, yep, you mentioned the bad movies, and I'm not even going to mention their names because they got it mostly very wrong. But the DART mission is an attempt to try to very, in a very small way, alter the orbit of the smaller component um, of this uh, mission. It, it, the, 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 the asteroid is called, it's called Didymos. There's an A and a B. A is the primary. It's about 2,500 feet across. And B is about a little more than 500 feet. So it's, it's quite a bit smaller. And like I said, its orbit is only a half mile apart. So it takes about 12 days for the little piece to orbit the big piece. So the mission will impact the smaller one. And we're trying to see if we can change the velocity that the small piece orbits the big piece with. They're only trying to change it maybe, you know, a fraction of a centimeter per second. But that will say that it will prove a concept that, okay, with a bigger payload, with maybe a little more punch, it, we can affect the course of a larger potentially impacting object. Now, all of this is predicated on us having enough notice. 
if we discover next week that an asteroid is going to hit us on Tuesday night, it's goodbye. You can't do anything about it. You need so much energy to cause a course change in that asteroid, no matter how big it is, that we don't have anything that sophisticated to do that. But if you find the potentially impacting object years in advance, in fact, the longer in advance of the impact you discover it, the more lightly you have to touch it to alter its course so that it misses the Earth. So I think everybody would agree that this kind of scientific mission and inquiry helps to ensure the survival of not just humans, but life on Earth. So it's, it's a real test of a proof of concept. Can we protect ourselves um, from incoming objects that, like you said, Matt, eventually will come? Well, I, it, it's very clear to me from the entire story of this mission that this is, if anyone has questions about the practicality of science, this is super practical. If you don't believe me, just find your nearest T-Rex and ask her. Okay, let's. speaking of movies of questionable quality, I actually really like the movie Contact. I just want to briefly, briefly well, touch on it. I like that movie, yeah. That was yeah, I like, I like Contact. You know, Deep Impact was a lot better than Armageddon. I, I, I have to say, we are not talking about sending Bruce Willis to an asteroid to you mine had, it. You, you had to go and mention it, didn't you? <laughs> I, I, well, you know, <laughs> These are big movies, people. You know, we might as well, might as well say what we're talking about. I, I just want to very, very briefly touch on the scenario from the movie Contact because there was a brief, brief glimmering moment where scientists thought that they might have detected a signal, not just a signal from space, not just a signal from space from another intelligence out there, but one from the nearest star to the Earth. This would be like, our, our cosmic neighbor, our next door neighbor, it might be practical to carry on a conversation back and forth. I mean, you know, over the course of four years, um, you know, one way trip, but it was super duper exciting. Then it turned out it was a glitch. But I did want to ask you about the overall enterprise of the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. I think that this recent story of this kind of near miss, uh, we almost thought we had a signal. It was exciting in itself because it did kind of shine a spotlight on this is an enterprise that is continuing. We are, we're working on it. Scientists around the world are working on it. Do you, how did you take this recent story of maybe we got it? Maybe we got it. Did you find it encouraging? Do you, do you find the overall fact that we have not yet found a good candidate signal from an extraterrestrial intelligence to be discouraging. How are you feeling about the overall search right now? Well, for, for, so let me give you a little, a little bit of background. I know we're running out of time. The, there's the, the star that's closest to the sun. It's actually a star consisting of three components. It's called the Alpha Centauri system. There are two bright, relatively sun-like stars that orbit each other. Um, and then there's a, th a third component that orbits that pair of stars. And it's classified as a, um, an M-class, uh, it's a, it's a uh, M-class star, which is 
very low mass, very small size, very faint. You can't see it with the naked eye, even though the system is about 4.3 light years away. In Proxima Centauri, the name of this nearest star is actually about 4.2 light years away. So it's the closest of the three stars in that system. And unfortunately, from where we are in New Hampshire, we can't see Alpha Centauri in the sky. It's, it's a really bright star, but we can't see it from our latitude. It's something that you have to see from the Southern hemisphere or the very Southern part of our, of our country. Um, so, but, and the interesting thing about this, this star system is that several of the, well, two of the stars in this three star system have been found to have planets orbiting them. So yes, we found planets orbiting stars at 50, 100, 500, 1,000 light years away. We'll, we'll, we'll never get there in, in the near future, right? That's pretty far. It takes 1,000 years to get to a, to a star that's 1,000 light years away traveling at the speed of light. Alpha Centauri system, 4.3 years. Yeah, I could, I could take you know, time off 4.3 years and go investigate that. Or I could wait four years for a return signal if we could communicate by, 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 by radio, right? So it's practical, just like you said. So when we, when we get, detect a radio signal, that's a little strange, a narrow band radio signal um, from the direction of that system, everybody sits up and takes notice. What, unfortunately, what I'm gonna tell you, it's unfortunate for you, the thing that impressed me the most was that the time the scientists and engineers took to analyze the signal and come up with the, the, the fact that it wasn't proof of intelligent life proves that the system has integrity. It's not gonna just jump on anything and say, yeah, we found it. We'd love to find it, right? Everyone involved would have loved to say, yep, we met the Joneses on the next star over and they're happy to meet us and they really wanna know what happens next on you know, the Masked Singer or whatever show you watch, right? So- That um, would be just too depressing, my gosh. I, you know what? I'd almost rather the scenario in Independence Day, let them come in giant spacecraft and invade us. I, I just, I, I hope their culture isn't as uh, denuded as ours, but please continue. Well, so so I, <laughs> this brings up another thought. What, what do you think? What do you think they would think by watching the science fiction movies? Right? They, you know, they might think that we have this Starship Enterprise and has phasers and all this kind of stuff. Right? They say, "Oh, gee, we should stay away from these these guys. They are dangerous and they're nasty." Oh, right. right. Like Star Trek is a documentary. That would be yeah. that would be incredible. Yeah. All they do is fight and shoot at each other. Don't they ever, you know, have we're putting fun? out interstellar propaganda. Like, hey, stay away from us. That's, <laughs> you know, I will say for for people who who kind of since we're touching on science fiction, actually, the greatest writer of uh, in China of science fiction. This was actually on Barack Obama's reading list. Believe it or not, it's a book called The Three Body Problem. It's actually a three part series. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's full of fantastic science. Uh, the writer is Lu Shixin. Uh, which I hope I pronounced more or less correctly. Um, and it's fantastic. It's really, really good. And if you're impatient, you know, you, you, you can't sit through the whole book. They're actually making a Netflix series out of it. So we can, wow. um, I, I, for people who like to speculate about such things, it's, it's about that system. And it's about the fact that it is 
a three-star system with these really unusual characteristics, not unusual in, in space, but kind of unusual as a math problem of like, how does the physics work of all these things orbiting around each other? Well, as you alluded to a second ago, we are beginning to, to see the end of the show. We're, we're running out of at a time, I, I wanted to save a little bit of time to talk about some practical stargazing, sky gazing that people can do. And the most exciting upcoming thing, and, and I think it'll still hit listeners as they're listening to this right now, is Comet Leonard. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit about that exciting sky gazing opportunity and other things that people can can look up and see in the weeks ahead? Well, it, depending on when this show airs, and I'm not we're, I'm not really sure when it's going to air, but there's a lot of things in the sky to see, and that I could say that any day of the week. Um, comet Leonard is a comet that um, unexpectedly brightened in the fall. It was discovered back in January of this year, so it was one of the very very early comets to be discovered. Um, it was just uh, so it it was in 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 all this time. It's um it's a part of a system of objects that orbits the sun at great distances, uh, like a, it has a, like a 35,000 year orbit. So it's been falling in toward the inner solar system. And in, in late November and early December, it was visible in the early morning sky, say between two o'clock and six o'clock when it got light. And it, it's grown a nice, pretty tail. Um, and it changed it, it as it, as it, it made its closest approach to Earth back on Monday, December 13th. So when a comet is close to Earth and also getting close to the sun, it's going to be the biggest and the brightest that it can be. So right now, um, again, before the show actually airs, it's visible in the evening sky. But each night, each night, the comet is moving relatively fast because the closer to the sun it gets, the more it feels the sun's gravity, it causes the comet to actually accelerate. And this comet is moving about 70 kilometers per second. So it's fast even for comets. So it doesn't hang around. It doesn't streak through the sky, but from night to night, you can actually see its progress against the starry background. So this week it's near the planet Venus in the Western sky at sunset. But in the week coming up for Christmas, it's gonna travel further and further to the south. So we're giving our, it's giving us Southern hemisphere observers a great chance to observe it. We in the Northern hemisphere have had, you know, all, all this year to look at it. And we, we've having our best chance in early December. In the second half of the month, the Southern hemisphere observers will get the advantage. But there are other things to look at in the sky. As it gets dark out, it's really interesting. As evening darkness falls, we have Mercury, Venus, Saturn, and Jupiter um, in the evening sky. Now, Mercury is a tough one to see because it's really low in the southwestern sky at sunset. But Venus is so bright, if you have any view of the southwestern horizon from where you live or from where you work, as soon as it starts to get dark, you can see this brilliant white light in the low in the southwestern sky. That's Venus. And I got to gotta say, for, for anyone out there who's like into UFOs, and then you hear the explanation, well, sometimes when people think they're seeing something weird in the sky, it's just Venus, and you kind of shrug that off. He's like, no, 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 can't possibly. No, 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 no. Right now, Venus is like 
it is it's like the 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 light of an oncoming train it is bright up there it's dazzling it's as bright as it has been for the whole year this month so it's a great time to look at it and it's super bright it just looks like a diamond in the sky sorry that's a cliche but it looks brilliant To, to its upper left in the sky you'll see a fainter dot of light that would be saturn and to its upper left um, you'll see a much brighter, maybe a yellowish tinted star-like object. That's Jupiter. And these planets, um, Venus, Saturn, and Jupiter, in that order from the lower in the sky to the higher in the sky in the southwest, had been really um, treating us to some beautiful, spectacular views all month long. And we'll continue to do that, especially when the moon moves by them. Uh, last week, the moon kind of visited each of those three planets um, in the sky, which was really pretty. Um, so that th- those are those are some of the really stunning things that, that are, are, are going to be visible between now and the end of the year uh, in the evening sky. So those are just- Well, I, I, I know it's getting super cold out, but I will say that for, for this is mostly for radio listeners, podcast listeners. I, I don't even know where on earth you are. Um, we, we literally have listeners around the world. So, uh, this may or may not apply to you, but for radio listeners in, in new England, in New Hampshire, I have to say that when, when Saturn is positioned the way it is right now, you don't have to have a telescope. You can, you can actually pick up a pair of binoculars and you may be able to see the smudge of the rings. And if not, Take a look at Jupiter because you can see the four largest moons, the Galilean moons of Jupiter. I have seen them with binoculars in the night sky in New Hampshire, just, just a, a regular set of binoculars. And you can see these little pinpricks of light. And it's it, it's just sort of breathtaking. I, I agree. I mean, a good pair of binoculars will show you the, the moons of Jupiter, depending on where they are in their orbits. Sometimes they're behind the planet. Sometimes they're in front of the planet, so they're not visible, but wait a few hours because they move really fast. And binoculars pick, pick, pick them out, pick them up easily. And, it, and it's really, it is, it is kind of a neat thing to, 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 to go and do it. And it's easy to do it. Jupiter is so bright, easy to see with the unaided eye, but you put binoculars on it and you can see um, up to four of its, of its uh, 79 moons that it has really absolutely incredible and it you know i i just i encourage people to do it because so many of the topics we've covered in this hour have been about the ultra far away the the sort of mind-bogglingly far or or just mind-bogglingly complex but one of the things that that i really enjoy about looking up at these objects we can see and then taking binoculars and peering just just a little bit closer is that it really does bring it home sort of the fascination of my goodness, it's these these are real objects, and, and it just puts me in mind of you know how people have experienced them for the first time throughout recorded history. It's it, it's it's a great experience and uh, great for kids as well. Well, John G and Forty, we have uh, sort of exhausted these topics, although not really. There's so much more we could talk about. We'll do a whole show about the creation of the moon. In the meantime, happy sky gazing, everyone. Cross your fingers for the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope. And John, we'll have you back again real soon. It would be my pleasure, Matt. Great to, great to be with you. 